So thank you for coming out to this session number seven from the beginning to the end. And I need to say something before I get started in the teaching tonight. I am very troubled by tonight's session. Uh, started early this morning and building all day long that something about tonight's topic is not about reading something that happened then, but something that's coming soon. And um, you can do with it what you want to, but um, something's heavy, heavy. This whole topic's heavy. I still believe the Holy Spirit does what the Holy Spirit does. He reveals truth. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, your word is truth. Um, it's alive. It reveals who you are, what you're doing, what you're going to do. So tonight I ask you just very specifically, open our minds to understand the scriptures. Give us eyes that can see and interpret what this happened in the fall of Jerusalem to what's going to happen near the return of Christ. And uh, pray, Father, that you give us ears to hear so that we'll understand what the Spirit's saying to the church. The church is your bride. She wants to hear from you. And give us hearts that would believe, receive, and obey you after we hear you. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever watched a movie and gotten near the end of the movie and said to yourself, this can't be how it ends? This is where we find ourselves as we open chapter 17 of the story. We covered it last week. The northern kingdom of Israel has fallen. It's terrible. It, the ten tribes disappear from the earth. And now the southern kingdom of Judah and Jerusalem have been invaded. And Solomon's temple is burned to the ground. This can't be how the story ends. Last week we finished with the great king Hezekiah, who God heard his prayer, saw his weeping, gave him 15 more years, defeated the, the enemy army that was surrounding Jerusalem by the angel of the Lord. And tonight, King Hezekiah, we get to the point where he's had a son, and the son does not follow in the father's footsteps. So let's begin with Manasseh, the son of King Hezekiah, 2 Kings, <coughs> excuse me, 21. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. He reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. His mother's name was Hepzibah. How would you like being junior high with that name? Hi, I'm Hepzibah. And no, you can't pronounce it either, so get off my back, all right? <laughs> so he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. Did you get that? The Lord drove these people out and gave the land to Israel, and now he's saying, you're worse than them. He rebuilt this, this Manasseh. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had destroyed. He also erected altars to Baal and made an Asherah pole. And Ahab, king of Israel, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord. Are you with me? Inside the temple. He built altars in the temple of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. In both courts of the temple in Jerusalem, 
He built altars to the starry hosts. He sacrificed his own son in the fire, practiced sorcery and divination and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. So the question is, will God remain silent or give Manasseh a break on behalf of his godly father, Hezekiah? And from God's perspective, let me just cut to the chase. By the time Manasseh comes, there is no remedy. Do you understand what that means? That there's nothing's going to undo what has just happened. From God's perspective, his, his justice, his holiness requires justice. So let's go to 2 Kings 21. But the people did not listen. So the prophets are coming, giving warnings. The people did not listen. And Manasseh led them astray so that they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. The Lord said through his servant, the prophets, Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these detestable sins. He has done more evil than the Amorites who preceded him. And has led Judah into sin, in, into sin with, the, with his idols. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I'm going to bring such disaster on Jerusalem and Judah that the ears of everyone who hears will tingle. I will stretch out over Jerusalem the measuring line used against Samaria. Do you understand what that means? By the time this happens, Samaria, the northern kingdom's already been annihilated. Assyria's already come and destroyed them. So what's he saying? I'm going to do down here what I did up there. I'm going to stretch out over Jerusalem, the, the southern kingdom, the measuring line that I used to destroy Samaria and the plumb line used against the house of Ahab. That's the king to the north. I will wipe out Jerusalem as a... As as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. That's what I'm going to do to Jerusalem. I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance and hand them over to their enemies. They will be looted and plundered by all their foes because they have done evil in my eyes and have promoted provoked me to anger from the day their forefathers came out of Egypt until this day. What was it? If you've been here very long, I've, I've talked about it and talked about it, and I don't know how many sessions, you're probably getting tired of hearing it. It's idolatry and apostasy. It's false gods and stepping away from that you, that you used to believe. You used to believe it, but now you don't believe it anymore. You, you fall away from the word and you worship idols. But did you notice something that also happened to Manasseh? Child sacrifice. He offered his own son on the altar. Child sacrifice. Sound familiar? God sent prophets and warning after warning, but they would not listen. They would not turn around. Preacher after preacher after preacher and they will not listen. So let's jump down to 2 Chronicles 36. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, scoffed at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people 
and there is no remedy. There's, there's a point where God says, that's it. That's, I'm done. His judgment begins with the evil King Manasseh. So when God says there's no remedy, his judgment begins with King Manasseh. And yes, an amazing thing happens in Manasseh's life to which I can only say, oh, the mercy of God. Because it, it kind of just blows my mind. When you look at Manasseh, how rotten he is, how evil he is, how he has set up uh, idols inside the Jewish temple. And, and, and you see God's wrath is going to be poured out against him. But when Manasseh, and I'm about to read it, when Manasseh repents and turns to God, God gives him mercy. Blows my mind. The mercy of God. So let's read it. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. So the Lord brought against them the army commanders of the king of Assyria. So who's bringing the king of Assyria down there? God's doing it. Who took Manasseh prisoner. So he dispatches God, brings the Assyrian king down, and he takes Manasseh, the king of Judah, prisoner. God's doing it. He takes him prisoner. Listen, he put a hook in his nose, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon as a slave. He's the king. In his distress, in King Manasseh's distress, he sought the favor of the Lord, his God, and he humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And when he prayed to God, to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. So he brought King Manasseh back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Do we serve an incredible, loving, merciful God? Yes. Yes. So here's the question. Would Manasseh's spiritual awakening change the direction of rebellious Judah and his own son that's going to follow him? His name is Ammon. So will he see his father's repentance with a hook in his nose as taken off? And will he say, hey, let's change directions? No, that's not how it works. So let's go look at King Ammon. Chapter 21. Ammon was 22 years old. When he became king, he reigned in Jerusalem two years. His mother's name was Meshulameth, daughter of Haruz. She was from Jotba. He did evil in the eyes, as the eyes of the Lord as his father Manasseh had done. He walked in the ways of his father. Listen, this is his resume. He worshipped idols his father had worshipped. He bowed down to them. He forsook the Lord, the God of his fathers. And he did not walk in the ways of the Lord. Now, now remember, this is the, the man whose father was drug off put a hook in his nose and repented and God brought him back. But it didn't affect Ammon. Ammon's officials conspired against him and assassinated the king in his palace. Then the people of the land killed all who plotted against King Ammon and they made Josiah, his son, king in his place. You see in these kings? They're coming. Now, 
that the northern kingdom has been destroyed as these, these happen. So the northern ten tribes are gone. They're gone. The king of Assyria owns everything up there. They're gone. Josiah has now been made king. He would be the one bright spot remaining in this kingdom of Judah that is absolutely destined for destruction. Josiah turns to God and he reestablishes the temple worship. They find the book of the law. If you read all that story, it's pretty incredible. They don't even, they have so abandoned the temple that when they find the book of the law, they're surprised. What is that? They don't even know what it is. As he reads the book of the law, he weeps and he tears his clothes in repentance because he didn't know about the book of the law. He didn't, let me just, he didn't know about what we would call the beginning of the Old Testament. He doesn't know. So God is so moved by Josiah's repentance and obedience that he postpones the destruction of Judah until after Josiah dies. Wow. Is destruction coming? Yep. But I'll wait until after you're gone because of what you did. So let me read it to you. It's important. What does this highlight so far? Repent and turn to God. Anybody listen? While you got a chance, repent and turn to God. While you're breathing air, repent and turn to God. He is merciful. It's 22:15. She said to them, it's a prophetess. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Tell the man, we're talking about King Josiah. Tell the man who sent you to me. This is what the Lord says. I'm going to bring disaster on this place. Now they're in Jerusalem. I'm going to bring disaster on this place and its people, according to everything written in the book of the king of Judah is read. Because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods, there's idolatry, provoked me to anger by their idols that their hands have made, my anger will burn against this place and it will not be quenched. Tell the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says concerning the words you heard. Now, the words he heard was they opened the book of the law and read it out loud and Josiah wept and repented. Because your heart was responsive to what? What was Josiah's heart responsive to? This. This. Because your heart was responsive to the word. And you humbled yourself before the Lord. When you heard what I have spoken against this place and its people. That they would become accursed and laid waste. And because you tore your robes and wept in my presence. I have heard you. God said, I heard you. Declares the Lord, therefore I will gather you to your fathers and you will be buried in peace. Your eyes will not see all the disaster I'm going to bring on this place. What, what do you think that means? The disaster is coming, but not until after you check out. Finally, it comes. Everybody listen. Finally, after these kings... It comes. God didn't send the Babylonians all at once, but over a period of 20 years. A lot of people in the church don't really 
noticed that. It didn't happen at once. It was over a period of 20 years. There was one big event and followed 20 years later by another big event. Um, the dates are in here. They're pretty accurately recorded in Scripture, but it's now too late. There is no remedy. There's only judgment. So let me read you some of the ones that are the most sobering. Ezekiel 14, 12, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, if a country sins against me by being unfaithful. Now, let me stop. Remember I told you that I'm troubled. I'm troubled in my spirit because these words have power. And I want you as I read this, we're reading about how God dealt with Judah, Jerusalem, the, the southern kingdom. These words apply right now. So I want you to put, Son of man, if a country sins against me, what if that country is us? Just, let's just insert, let's insert ourselves into the storyline. This is why I'm troubled. If a country sins against me by being unfaithful, and I stretch out my hand against it, to cut off its food supply and send famine upon it, kill its men and its animals. Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in that country, they could only save themselves by their righteousness, declares the sovereign Lord. What does he mean? It's too late. Number one, these holy men will not be able to intercede on behalf of the nation that has abandoned God. Now, there's another one. If you, I didn't put it in here, but you need to get this part. He even says this, that even if Noah, Daniel, and Job had their wife and kids with them, I would kill their wife and kids. I would only save the three holy men. I would not save their families. That's how the judgment is going to come down. Do, do you get it? It's over. It's over. Let's go to 2 Kings 24. During Jehoiakim's reign, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, invaded the land. Here he comes. And Jehoiakim became his vassal for three years. But then he changed his mind and rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. And the Lord sent Babylonian, Aramean, Moabite, and Ammonite raiders against him. He sent them to destroy Judah in accordance with the word of the Lord proclaimed by the servant, by his servants, the prophets. Surely these things happened to Judah according to the Lord's command. Surely these things are happening according to the Lord's command. Who's invading Judah? God. He's just using Babylon, Babylon and these other armies to do so in order to remove them from his presence. Because of the sins of Manasseh and all that he had done, including, listen, the shedding of innocent blood. America, do you think it doesn't matter? Because of what Manasseh did. What did Manasseh do? He offered his son on an altar at the Jerusalem temple to Molech. And when it comes judgment time, he brings it up. It's recorded, including the shedding of innocent blood. For he had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord was not willing to forgive. No. 
Idolatry and the shedding of innocent blood. God was not willing to let it go. He was not willing to forgive this. I want you to compare this to our nation today. Idolatry and shedding of innocent blood. Let's call it abortion. Child sacrifice. Thousands, millions, way larger scale than anything that ever took place in, in Jerusalem. And God destroyed them because of this. And people today, even in the church, many today think, well, whatever. Destruction of the nation is unstoppable. In this story, at this point, destruction is unstoppable. But 20 years of time allows for many to repent and turn to God, but will they? When I say 20 years, from the initial invasion of King Nebuchadnezzar to the final destruction of King Nebuchadnezzar in Jerusalem, there's, there's 20 years in there. There's a lot of time. Ezekiel and Jeremiah are both appointed by God to be watchmen, to warn the people and turn their hearts to repentance. In the middle of this, um, the beginning of the destruction of Jerusalem, he sends prophets, he sends preachers, and he tells them, repent and turn to God, repent and turn to God. And I'm convinced that some did. I, I am. I'm convinced that some people did, but most of them didn't. And did the, did the nation turn. No, the nation did not turn. So let me read you some of that. Let's go to Ezekiel. He said to me, God said to Ezekiel, son of man, stand up on your feet and I will speak to you. As he spoke, the spirit came into me and raised me to my feet and I heard him speaking to me. He said, son of man, I am sending you to the Israelites, to the rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their fathers have been in revolt against me to this very day. The people to whom I am sending you are an obstinate and stubborn. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. And whether they listen to you, Ezekiel, or whether they fail to listen to you, Ezekiel, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. Why do you think God did that? God's justice required something. Somebody told you. God's justice requires truth. And truth is what? Somebody warned you. You didn't listen, but I sent God, God to Ezekiel. I sent somebody to tell you. Whether they listen or they don't listen, at least they'll know a prophet was there. Let's go down to chapter 7. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, this is what the sovereign Lord says to the land of Israel. The end. Ooh, that gives me cold chills. The end has come upon the four corners of the land. The end is now upon you. And I will unleash my anger against you. I will judge you according to your conduct and repay you for all your detestable practices. I will not look on you with pity or spare you. I will surely repay you for your conduct and the detestable practices among you. Then you will know I am the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Disaster. An unheard of disaster is coming. Let that sink in. Is the Word of God alive? An unheard of disaster is coming. 
The end has come. The end has come. It has roused itself against you. It has come. Doom has come upon you who dwell in the land. The time has come. The day is near. There is panic, not joy, upon the mountains. I am about to pour out my wrath on you and spend my anger against you. I will judge you according to your conduct and repay you for all your detestable practices. I will not look on you with pity or spare you. I will repay you in accordance with your conduct and the detestable practices among you. Then you will know that I am the Lord who strikes the blow the day is here it has come doom has burst forth the rod has budded arrogance has blossomed do we serve a different God than this one no he's the same God he's the same God Jeremiah they call Jeremiah the weeping prophet a whole lot of reasons for that he was there at the end Let's go to Jeremiah 1. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you, Jeremiah, in, your, in, in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, Jeremiah, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Ah, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I am only a child. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a child. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord reached out his hand, and he touched my mouth and said to me, Now, I have put my words in your mouth. See? Today, I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. What power does Jeremiah have to build and plant and upthrow, up, up end nations? What? I have put my word in your mouth. My word will do it. His word. Jeremiah starts to describe Go down to verse 13. My people committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken down cisterns that can't hold water. Now, people in that region understood what water was life. Water is life. They've forsaken me, the source of water, which is life, and built a substitute cistern thinking that they could retain, sustain their life by alternate means. Idols, idols, idols. America, he is the source of life. Idols, an alternate source of life. We don't need God. We'll pick something else to sustain us. Money, medicine, intellect. Go down to verse 27. They say to wood, you're my father, idolatry. And to stone, you gave me birth. They have turned their backs to me, not their faces. Now I'm going to stop with that because that's, that's to me, that's, that's it right there. They turn their backs to me instead of their faces. So I'm going to ask you a question. What is repentance? It's what 
has, it's, it's what God wants from people who find themselves in sin. What is repentance? It's when you acknowledge that you're not facing him anymore. He's over here and you're looking this way. Repentance is what? Turn around. Just, just turn around. Face God. Just face him. Just face him. And when you face him, the whole concept of confession and repentance becomes pretty clear. When you face God, it kind of comes natural at that point when you see who he is and you see who you are compared to him. So what's the problem in Judah? What's the problem today? You won't turn around. Why? 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 Arrogant, pride, self-sufficiency, deception. Because to turn around is to acknowledge that you are no longer in control. That he is. And you don't want to admit that you're not in control. You don't want to yield that control to someone else. You think you've got this, but you don't got this. They have turned their backs to me, not their faces. Yet when they are in trouble, they say, come save us. Where then are the gods you made for yourselves? Let them come if they can save you when you're in trouble. For you have as many gods as you have towns, O Judah. So did God abandon his people in the covenant he made with Abraham and David? At this point, as he's about to send destruction upon the city of Jerusalem and the nation of Judah, did God abandon the covenant he made with Abraham and renewed with David? No. No. He didn't abandon the covenant. Even when judgment was coming to Jerusalem, he told them they could surrender to Babylon and live. Even when that city is surrounded, you know, you know what happened? I don't have time to go into it in detail, but listen carefully. Even when they're surrounded and they're under siege and women are eating their babies to stay alive. Do you understand? That's how bad the siege is. They're, they're eating their children. They're starving to death. God said to Jeremiah, tell them, go out, open the gate, surrender to the Babylonians and you'll live. I'll offer, you, I'll offer you life. Just, just believe me. Go surrender and you'll live. They wouldn't. So here's the conclusion. God would regather. So how did he keep his covenant? Here's what I want you to get. He's going to destroy. He's going to annihilate the place. But how did he keep the covenant? So, so preacher, you say he kept the covenant of Abraham and David. He's going to regather them. You see, we think in this timeline, like if he don't do it in the next two weeks, he's not going to do it. And God's thinking of eternity. You know, he's not running out of time. We are. Right? He's not running out of time. He's going to regather his people. He's going to, a few survivors are going to make it, and he's going to send them off to different places. And at the end of 70 years, he's going to bring them back. So his covenant is going to be retained. He scattered them. 
but he's going to keep his promise to Abraham and David. This is the letter to the captives living in Babylon. Oh, the mercy of God. Now, let me set it up. Jerusalem has fallen. It was 586 BC. Nebuchadnezzar comes. Most of them die. They take a few of them and they let them, they force march them to Babylon. And there they stay. And they're going to be there for 70 years. 70 years. They're going to, you know, they don't live that long in those days. So most of the ones who have been carried off, they're not going to come back. Their children might. If they were really young, maybe they might. But they're going to die in a foreign land. Right? But here's what God said. And by the way, he, he tells Jeremiah to send the letter. Ezekiel quotes the letter. So they're all reading the letter. Right? Here's what he says to them. Now, they're getting the letter in Babylon. They're get, they're, they're, Jerusalem's gone. They're in Babylon. And they get this letter. Build houses. Settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so they too may have sons and daughters. Now, let me make something clear. That was not Mary with the Babylonians. That was Mary inside Israel. Don't, don't intermarry with the Babylonians. Nope, 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 nope. Don't think he said that because he didn't. Here's what he said. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Do you see the covenant he's going to keep? Through you, I will bless all the nations of the earth. You're going to have more children than the sands of the sea and the stars of the sky. I want you to increase even while you're in captivity. I want you to increase, not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, if Babylon prospers while you're there, you will prosper too. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are the prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. Now here comes what many of you memorized at some point in your life probably. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon... I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. What's this place? I'll bring you back to Judah, back to Jerusalem. When, after 70 years, I'll bring you back. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Then, then, now he's talking about future then you will call upon me and you will come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and the places which I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Is he going to keep his covenant to Abraham? Yes. Are many going to die? Yes. God's going to be faithful. Surrender and live. Why? Why? Listen. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is a song uh, that some of y'all sang. If you went to Sunday school, them bones gonna rise again. Y'all want me here? Y'all want here? Here we go. Them bones, them bones, them dry bones. Them bones, them bones, them dry bones. Them bones, them bones, them dry bones. Them bones gonna rise again. 
That's my own, that's the only one you're getting out of me tonight. <laughs> and this is it, this is it, all right now? Why, why, listen, until you see this whole story, you'll never understand that song. You'll never understand this text. He's gonna keep his covenant to Abraham. The 10 Northern kingdoms are gone. Do you understand they're gone? They're not coming back. The two Southern kingdoms, they're gone. But he says, in 70 years, I'll come get them. I will bring them back. Now, in that, in that scene, here we go. Ezekiel 37. The hand of the Lord was upon me. He brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord, and he set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley. Bones that were very dry. What do you think it means, very dry? This, they've been dead a long time. This thing's been gone a long time. He asked me, son of man, can these bones live? Can you resurrect a nation of bones? I said, oh, sovereign Lord, only you know. And then he said to me, prophesy to these bones, Ezekiel, say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied. Here's Ezekiel. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. And I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them. But there was no breath in them. I bet that was a scary sight. They're not breathing. And then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. And they came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Who's rising? Israel is rising. If you doubt that, listen carefully. He's talking about Israel, rebirth, rising. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. It's clear who he's talking about. They say, our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. The northern kingdoms are gone. The southern kingdom's been annihilated. Our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign says. Says, oh my people, I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. <clears throat> then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken. I have done it, declares the Lord. Now, I could go for the rest of this night into the morning with what that means. It is a preview of the resurrection of the last day. It is a preview of Israel reborn in 1948 and in 1967 when they take Jerusalem. It is a preview of a whole lot of stuff. He's going to keep his covenant. It is a preview of those who die and will be raised from the dead who are in Christ. So the kingdom has fallen. Let's go to the next chapter. It's chapter 18. Daniel goes into exile. What a contrast. Some people in the story have amazing integrity. 
and others seem to have none at all. Let's contrast uh, Manasseh to Hezekiah. Hezekiah has this great integrity. Manasseh's a dirty, rotten scoundrel. Remember the young man Joseph in chapter 3? who was sold by a slave, as a slave by his own brothers, became a prisoner in a foreign land far from home with no family members, friends around to encourage or critique him. Joseph led a life of staggering integrity. Everybody listen. He had nobody watching him. Nobody knew him. And yet he lived a life of staggering integrity. He resisted temptation, even though no one would have ever known except one, God. Here in chapter 18, we encounter four young men from Judah who have been exiled in the capital city of their sworn enemies. They're in Babylon. They were in a place where no one was looking. They could compromise and cut corners and no one would know except God. Integrity can seem like an antiquated value in our modern world. Every day we have opportunities to make little concessions Indeed, our culture invites and encourages compromise. You won't get caught. It's no big deal. Everybody's doing it. It's the price of doing business. Lighten up. No one else cares about it. Why should you? No one will ever know. Sound like the culture we live in? And then we hear that still small voice that spoke to Joseph in prison and Daniel and his three friends in captivity. I see, I care, I love you, stand strong. The story tonight begins in this chapter around 605 BC, around 19 years before the final destruction of Jerusalem and the fall of the southern kingdom. So what we're going to do is we're going to back up 19 years from the, the fall of Jerusalem 19 years to the first time Nebuchadnezzar comes. Daniel 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles of the temple of God. Then he carried off the temple to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasures in the treasure house of his God. So let, let me make sure you get that part. So he's going to come and get some people. When Nebuchadnezzar comes, he's going to take some of the, the, the gold goblets and some of the fancy uh, items out of the Jerusalem temple. He's going to carry off people too. Then the king ordered Aphanaz, chief of the court officials, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men, without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. Do you see what's happening? The, king, the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, he's going to bring back the gold and all the precious things out of the temple. He's going to bring back some Jewish young men and train them in Babylonian thinking. Okay? The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine in the king's table. They were to be trained for three years and after they were to enter the king's service. Among these were from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, the chief of 
officials gave them new names to Daniel. They named him Belteshazzar, to Hananiah is Shadrach, to Mishael is Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. Four young men, we guess they're probably teenagers carried off to a foreign land. What will they do and how will they live? Nobody there would know, right? Let's go down to verse eight. Uh, verse eight. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. Now, here's the first thing I want you to see. Can God make somebody like you? Do, do you think he does that stuff? Does, can God make somebody like you? Do you understand that these four Hebrews are slaves? These Babylonians don't have to pay any attention to them. They can just be ruthless to them. But God makes the one in charge of Daniel like him. He, he makes him look favorably upon him. Um, now, God calls the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. The same thing happened to Joseph. Remember when he's in prison? The, that the jailer looked favorably upon him. So what's it telling you? That when you think you're all alone... God's got, he's got this. He's still got it. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my Lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. So if you don't eat and stay healthy, he's going to execute me. The first thing I want you to notice is not the issue of food. It is the issue of God's presence. God has not abandoned his people. Is Daniel in Babylon? Do they speak foreign language? Is he never going to go home? Do you know the rest of the story? He never went home. In the scripture, he never ever made it back home. It's kind of sad, isn't it? This man who, who you're going to see tonight saw and did things that no man on earth could imagine, but he never got to go home. But God has not abandoned his people. He is about to reveal himself through Daniel to the nation of Babylon. So he's moved all these Jewish people up to the north, and through them, he's going to reveal himself to Babylon. Daniel's integrity is the vehicle through which God will reveal his holiness, his sovereignty. And here we go, the main event, the future of all mankind is in this story. The future of all mankind. The upper story plan of God is about to be revealed in the kingdoms of men. The 10-day test of diet proves that Daniel and his companions were healthier than the others who ate, at the king's, ate the king's food. This single act began to separate Daniel from the pagans in the land. God blessed Daniel and his three friends with special gifts. God's there. He's, who's doing this? God's doing this. So let's go to verse 17. To, those, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel. Now, he's comparing them to his homeboys. 
right? The, the local guys. He said, no one's equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. All of this was to prepare for the revelation of God. God was going to give King Nebuchadnezzar a dream. And that dream was going to reveal, the, listen, the future of all mankind. All mankind until the very end. Chapter 2. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I've had a dream that troubles me and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will interpret it. Now that's important. They do not know what he dreamed. But the king replied to the astrologers, This is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and, and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your house is turned into piles of rubble. Have a nice day. <laughs> but if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards of great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. You say, I think this guy's been tricked before, right? I think he's been tricked before, that he tells them the dream and they make up some interpretation. He's not falling for it this time. No one could do what the king had asked. No one could know a man's dream and interpret them. Only God could do that. So let's go down to verse 10. The astrologers answered the king, there is not a man on earth who can do what the king asked. I wonder how long he lived. No, no king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods. And they do not live among men. They don't know about Yahweh. Nebuchadnezzar is so troubled by the dream and frustrated by his useless religious counselors that he orders them all executed for their inability to comply with his order. This forces Daniel. By the way, do you understand that when that edict came down, all of you are going to die. Let's get some new ones. Daniel's in that circle. Do you understand that? Daniel is inside that group. He's going to die with them. So he's motivated, right? This forces Daniel to call upon God for something only God could deliver. The revealing of the mystery. What was the dream and what did it mean? Dan At this point, Daniel doesn't know. Nobody knows except Nebuchadnezzar. And he only knows the dream. He doesn't know the meaning. Verse 16. At this, Daniel went in to the king and asked for time. He asked for time. So that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained this matter to his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them, which we know is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. Why, why is he asking them to plead for mercy? 
because they're going to die too. All of them are going to die. So that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and he deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we ask of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. Now, don't miss the context of this dream, this revelation of God. The nation of Israel and Judah have collapsed and now the kingdoms of the Gentiles will have their season. God has determined their time. Who rules Jerusalem? If Jerusalem is the center of the earth, the place that God has called by his name, who's in charge? Israel, the Jewish people? No. The time of the Gentiles has begun. Everybody listen. You want to understand this story? You must understand that the time of the Jewish people in Jerusalem has passed. Now, in the future, different Gentile kings will retain control of Jerusalem. Not the Jewish people. It's important. You're not going to get the story the dream until you get that's what's happened so the context is this the nation of israel and judah they've collapsed we're in the kingdoms of the gentile they're going to have their season and god has determined their time and he's about to reveal it to the first one who takes jerusalem who's the first gentile king to take jerusalem nebuchadnezzar the babylonians and he's the one he's going to reveal it to. Can you imagine the expectation of Nebuchadnezzar as he asked the following question to Daniel? Let's go to verse 26. The king asked Daniel, Are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mysteries he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven. Do you see the humility of Daniel? He does not touch the glory. He doesn't even dare touch the glory. He says no. In fact, you know what? That's kind of a scary thing. He could have had his head cut off before he got to the good part. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. <clears throat> he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the days to come. He's showing Nebuchadnezzar the future of the Gentile kingdoms of man. You listening? Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you lay on the bed are these. Daniel's going to tell him the dream. As you were lying there, O king, your mind turned to things to come. And the revealer of mysteries showed you what's going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than any other living men, but so that you, O king, may know the interpretation that you may understand what went through your mind. 
Here it comes. You looked, O king, and there before you was a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock cut out of a rock cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold were broken to pieces at the same time, at the same time, at the same time. Understand that this collapse of this statue will happen at the same time. And became like chaff on the threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled and covered the entire earth. Daniel is not just revealing the dream. Daniel is not just revealing the meaning of the dream. Most importantly, Daniel is revealing the God of heaven that has an upper story plan for all of the kingdoms of men. God is wanting Nebuchadnezzar to know not just the dream and what it means, but the God who has a plan, and he's revealing that plan to people on the earth. Nebuchadnezzar at this point, Daniel's told him his dream must wonder. So, what does it mean? Because could he tell by that what it means? Obviously not. So here it comes. Here comes the interpretation. This was the dream. And now we will interpret it to the king. You, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them. You, Nebuchadnezzar, are the head of gold in that dream. You. After you, another kingdom will arise. Everybody listen. It will be the second Gentile kingdom in Jerusalem. Right? Another kingdom will arise inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything, and as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom, yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly partly clay. So the kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, you can underline that sentence. In the time of those kings, that means while the Gentiles are in control, in the time of those kings, the time of the Gentiles, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. Anybody listening? While the Gentiles are in power, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it ever be left to another people. It, this new kingdom, will crush all those kingdoms 
and bring them to an end, but it itself will endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountains, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true. The interpretation is trustworthy. You know what Daniel is telling him? And here comes the short version. The time of the Gentiles has come. Babylon, head of gold. Medo-Persian empire, chest of silver. The Greek empire, bronze. The feet of iron and clay, the Roman empire. And then the bottom, the toes, will be a revived Roman empire. Under, listen. Finally, in the very end, it'll be the revived Roman Empire eventually under the power of the Antichrist. So compare this dream. You hear, you hear the dream. Compare this dream to the Apostle Paul's sermon in Athens, Greece, 600 years later, right? Well, I want you to look at these two. Paul walks into Athens, Greece. This is after the death and the burial and the resurrection. He has the Holy Spirit. He knows the gospel. He knows who the king of Israel is, right? He knows. Acts 17, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. By the way, he's in Athens, Greece. Athens is one of the, it's the third of the Gentile kingdoms. Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. So he's in Greece and he says, it is the Lord, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. He is not served by humans' hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives life and life and breath to everything else. Here it comes. From one man, we would know that to be Adam. From one man, he made every nation of men. Are, are you with me? Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Romans, right? So who's in charge when he does this? He's in Athens, Greece, but who's in charge? The Greeks have fallen. Roman, Rome has risen. By the time this happens, Rome's in charge of the world. The fourth, the fourth kingdom has already come. From one nation, excuse me, from one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the times set for them Head of gold, chest of silver, right? The time set for them and the exact places where each of those kingdoms would live. He sets the boundaries of each nation. God did this so that men would seek him, perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Is the book of Daniel about integrity and commitment of Daniel and his three Hebrews friends? Yes, 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 yes. However, if you've been here very long, you know this is one of my major frustrations with the church. I grew up in a church my entire life. You know what church people taught me about the book of Daniel? Lion's den, fiery furnace. Nobody ever taught me the real story of Daniel. This is it. Those are sideline items. I'm not making light of them. They're sideline items. Most people never teach the most important revelation of God from the book of Daniel. They just want to tell Bible stories. You know why? Because it's easy. It's easy. 
So let me repeat verse 44 and 45. Listen carefully. I wonder, do you get it? Can you, could you tell somebody else what this means? Can you go out of here, find somebody that is lost, that doesn't understand? Can you tell them what this means? The church must be able to tell people what this means. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Nor will it be left to another people. It, this kingdom that's coming, will crush all the kingdoms of the earth. And bring them to an end. But it, this new kingdom, will endure forever. It's eternal. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, bronze, clay, silver, gold. What is the iron, bronze, clay, silver, gold? It's the Gentile kingdoms of men that are going to one day be utterly destroyed. When a rock comes out of the mountain, it comes from the sky. It hits the feet of iron and clay. It crushes every Gentile kingdom of the earth. And it becomes a, it covers the entire earth with a new kingdom. His name's Jesus. He is prophesied in the book of Daniel, and much of the church cannot explain it. Why? We're telling Bible stories when we ought to be telling the story, the greatest story ever known, that every Gentile kingdom of men one day will come to a close. It's going to all come to an end. Why am I troubled by this session tonight? I believe that day is near very near what you do with that will be up to you this dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy later Nebuchadnezzar has another dream this one is about an enormous tree and Daniel again is called to interpret the dream to the king and I want you to notice the proclamation from God it's mentioned four times in the book of Daniel I read this every time there's an election in America makes me feel better Daniel 4, 17, the decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the most high is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of men, which I think is in full display currently. <laughs> and in Zechariah 14, 4, I'm telling you this day is coming. When a rock comes out of heaven and stands upon this earth in Jerusalem, on that day, his feet, his name is Jesus, will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half the mountain moving north and half moving south. The entire earth will shake when he stands upon this earth. And I assure you, the kingdoms of men will fall when he arrives. That's Zechariah 14. In the book of Acts, one more scripture, Acts 1 verse 11, Jesus is standing there about ready to say goodbye to his apostles. And guess where he's standing? Acts 1 11, men of Galilee, they said, here's the angels. Why do you stand here looking up into the sky? That same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. If you read a couple of verses down, where are they standing? They are standing on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem. In Zechariah, where will he stand? 
on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem. In Daniel, what's coming? A rock cut out of the mountain, not by human hands. He's not by human. Humans don't do this. Are going to come and crush the feet of iron and clay. All the kingdoms of men and all their arrogance and all their pride will be crushed upon his arrival. He is the cornerstone. He is the rock that makes them stumble, the stone that makes them fall. If you stand upon this stone of Christ, you will live forever. But if you refuse, that stone, when it comes, will crush you. That's the story of Daniel. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Father, prepare your bride, awaken your bride so that we can see. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all.